Chapter Two of the Little Duke. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kalinda. The Little Duke by Charlotte M. Young. Chapter Two. One evening, Fru Astrida sat in her tall chair in the chimney corner, her distaff with its load of flax in her hand while she twisted and drew out the thread, and her spindle danced on the floor. Opposite to her sat, sleeping in his chair, Sir Eric de Santeville. Osmond was on a low bench within the chimney-corner, trimming and shaping with his knife some feathers of the wild goose, which were to fly in a different fashion from their former one, and serve not to wing the flight of a harmless goose, but of a sharp arrow. The men of the household sat ranged on benches on one side of the hall, the women on the other, a great red fire, together with an immense flickering lamp, which hung from the ceiling, supplied the light. The windows were closed with wooden shutters, and the whole apartment had a cheerful appearance. Two or three large hounds were reposing in front of the hearth, and among them sat little Richard of Normandy, now smoothing down their broad silken ears, now tickling the large cushions of their feet with the end of one of Osmond's feathers, now fairly pulling open the eyes of one of the good-natured sleepy creatures, which only stretched its legs, and remonstrated it with a sort of low groan, rather than a growl. The boy's eyes were, all the time, intently fixed on Dame Astrida, as if he would not lose one word of the story she was telling him, how Earl Rollo, his grandfather, had sailed into the mouth of the Seine, and how Archbishop Franco of Rouen had come to meet him and brought him the keys of the town, and how not one Neustrian of Rouen had met with the harm from the brave Northman. Then she told him of his grandfather's baptism, and how during the seven days that he wore his white baptismal robes, he had made large gifts to all the chief churches in his dukedom of Normandy. "'Oh, but tell of the paying homage,' said Richard, "'and how Sigurd Bloodaxe threw down simple King Charles. "'Oh, how I would have laughed to see it!' "'Nay, nay, Lord Richard,' said the old lady, "'I love not that tale. "'That was ere the Norman learnt courtesy.' and rudeness ought rather to be forgotten than remembered, save for the sake of amending it. No, I will rather tell you of our coming to Santeville, and how dreary I thought these smooth meads, and broad, soft, gliding streams, compared with mine own father's fjord in Norway, shut in with the tall black rocks and dark pines above them, and far away the snowy mountains rising into the sky. Oh, how blue the waters were in the long summer days, when I sat in my father's boat in the little fjord, and— Dame Astrida was interrupted. A bugle-note rang out at the castle gate. The dogs started to their feet, and uttered a sudden deafening bark. Osmond sprung up, exclaiming, Hark! and trying to silence the hounds. And Richard, running to Sir Eric, cried, Wake, wake, Sir Eric, my father is come. Oh, haste to open the gate and admit him. "'Peace, dogs,' said Sir Eric, slowly rising, as the blast of the horn was repeated. "'Go, Osmond, with the porter, and see whether he who comes at such an hour be friend or foe. "'Stay you here, my lord,' he added, as Richard was running after Osmond. And the little boy obeyed and stood still, though quivering all over with impatience. "'Tidings from the duke, I should guess,' said Fru Astrida. "'It can scarce be himself at such an hour.' "'Oh, it must be, dear Fru Astrida,' said Richard. "'He said he would come again. "'Hark, there are horses' feet in the court. "'I am sure that is his black charger's tread, "'and I shall not be there to hold his stirrup. 
"'Oh, Sir Eric, let me go!' Sir Eric, always a man of few words, only shook his head, and at that moment steps were heard on the stone stairs. Again Richard was about to spring forward when Osmond returned, his face showing at a glance that something was amiss. But all that he said was, "'Count Bernard of Harcourt and Sir Rainulf de Ferrier,' and he stood aside to let them pass. Richard stood still in the midst of the hall, disappointed. Without greeting to Sir Eric or to any within the hall, the Count of Harcourt came forward to Richard, bent his knee before him, took his hand, and said with a broken voice and heaving breast, "'Richard, Duke of Normandy, I am thy liegeman and true vassal.' Then rising from his knees, while Rainulf de Ferrier went through the same form, the old man covered his face with his hands and wept aloud. "'Is it even so?' said the Baron de Santeville and being answered by a mournful look and sigh from Ferrière, he too bent before the boy, and repeated the words, I am thy liegeman and true vassal, and swear fealty to thee for my castle and barony of Santeville. Oh, no, no! cried Richard, drawing back his hand in a sort of agony, feeling as if he was in a frightful dream from which he could not awake. What means it? Oh, Fru Estrida, tell me, what means it? Where is my father? "'Alas, my child,' said the old lady, putting her arm around him, and drawing him close to her, whilst her tears flowed fast. And Richard stood, reassured by her embrace, listening with eyes open wide and deep oppressed breathing to what was passing between the four nobles, who spoke earnestly among themselves without much heed of him. "'The Duke dead,' repeated Sir Eric de Sainteville, like one stunned and stupefied. "'Even so,' said Rainulf, slowly and sadly and the silence was only broken by the long-drawn sobs of old Count Bernard. "'But how? When? Where?' broke forth Sir Eric presently. "'There was no note of battle when you went forth. Oh, why was I not at his side?' "'He fell not in battle,' gloomily replied Sir Rainulf. "'Ha! Could sickness cut him down so quickly?' "'It was not sickness,' answered Ferrier. "'It was treachery. He fell in the Isle of Pequigny by the hand of the false Fleming. "'Lives the traitor yet?' cried the Baron de Santeville, grasping his good sword. "'He lives and rejoices in his crime,' said Ferrier, "'safe in his own merchant towns.' "'I can scarce credit you, my lords,' said Sir Eric. "'Are Duke slain, and his enemy safe, and you here to tell the tale?' "'I would I were stark and stiff by my lord's side,' said Count Bernard, "'but for the sake of Normandy, and of that poor child, "'who was like to need all that ever were friends to his house. "'I would that mine eyes had been blinded for ever, "'ere they had seen that sight, "'and not a sword lifted in his defence. "'Tell you how it passed, Rainulf. "'My tongue will not speak it.' "'He threw himself on a bench and covered his face with his mantle, "'while Rainulf de Ferriere proceeded.' You know how in an evil hour our good duke appointed to me this caitiff, Count of Flanders, in the Isle of Pequigny, the duke and count each bringing twelve men with them, all unarmed. Duke Alan of Brittany was one on our side, Count Bernard here another, old Count Bothan and myself. We bore no weapon. Would that we had, but not so the false Flemings. Oh, me, I shall never forget Duke William's lordly presence when he stepped ashore and doffed his bonnet to the knave Arnulf. "'Yes,' interposed Bernard. "'And marked you not the words of the traitor as they met? "'My lord,' quoth he, "'you are my shield and defence. "'Would that I could cleave his treason-hatching skull with my battle-axe!' "'So,' continued Rainulf, 
They conferred together, and as words cost nothing to Arnulf, he not only promised all restitution to the paltry Montreuil, but even was for offering to pay homage to our duke for Flanders itself. But this our William refused, saying it were foul wrong to both King Louis of France and Kaiser Otto of Germany to take from them their vassal. They took leave of each other in all courtesy, and we embarked again. It was Duke William's pleasure to go alone in a small boat, while we twelve were together in another. Just as we had nearly reached our own bank, there was a shout from the Flemings that their count had somewhat further to say to the duke, and forbidding us to follow him, the duke turned his boat and went back again. No sooner had he set foot on the isle, proceeded the Norman, clenching his hands and speaking between his teeth, than we saw one Fleming strike him on the head with an oar. He fell senseless. The rest threw themselves upon him, and the next moment held up their bloody daggers in scorn at us. You may well think how we shouted and yelled at them, and plied our oars like men distracted, but all in vain. They were already in their boats, and ere we could even reach the isle, they were on the other side of the river, mounted their horses, fled with coward speed, and were out of reach of a Norman's vengeance. "'But they shall not be so long,' cried Richard, starting forward, for to his childish fancy this dreadful history was more like one of Dame Estrida's legends than a reality, and at the moment his thought was only of the blackness of the treason. Oh, that I were a man to chastise them! One day they shall feel—he broke off short, for he remembered how his father had forbidden his denunciations of vengeance, but his words were eagerly caught up by the barons, who, as Duke William had said, were far from possessing any temper of forgiveness, thought revenge a duty, and were only glad to see a warlike spirit in their new prince. "'Ha! Say you so, my young lord?' exclaimed old Count Bernard, rising. "'Yes, and I see a sparkle in your eye that tells me you will one day avenge him nobly.' Richard drew up his head, and his heart throbbed high as Sir Eric made answer. "'Aye, truly, that will he. You might search Normandy through, yea, and Norway likewise, ere you would find a temper more bold and free. Trust my word, Count Bernard, our young duke will be famed as widely as ever were his forefathers.' "'I believe it well,' said Bernard. "'He hath the port of his grandfather, Duke Rollo.' and much, too, of his noble father. How say you, Lord Richard, will you be a valiant leader of the Norman race against our foes? That I will, said Richard, carried away by the applause excited by those few words of his. I will ride at your head this very night, if you will but go to chastise the false Flemings. You shall ride with us to-morrow, my lord, answered Bernard, but it must be to Rouen, there to be invested with your ducal sword and mantle, and to receive the homage of your vassals. Richard drooped his head without replying, for this seemed to bring him the perception that his father was really gone, and that he should never see him again. He thought of all his projects for the day of his return, how he had almost counted the hours, and had looked forward to telling him that Father Lucas was well pleased with him. And now he should never nestle into his breast again, never hear his voice, never see those kind eyes beam upon him. Large tears gathered in his eyes, and ashamed that they should be seen, he sat down on a footstool at Fru Astrida's feet, leant his head on his hands, and thought over all that his father had done and said the last time they were together. He fancied the return that had been promised, going over the meeting and the greeting, till he had almost persuaded himself that this dreadful story was but a dream. But when he looked up, there were the barons, with their grave, mournful faces, speaking of the corpse which Duke Alan of Brittany was escorting to Rouen, there to be buried beside the old Duke Rollo and the Duchess Emma, Richard's mother. 
Then he lost himself in wonder how that stiff, bleeding body could be the same as the father whose arm was so lately around him, and whether his father's spirit knew how he was thinking of him. And in these dreamy thoughts the young orphan Duke of Normandy, forgotten by his vassals in their grave councils, fell asleep, and scarce wakened enough to attend to his prayers when Fru Astrida at length remembered him and led him away to bed. When Richard awoke the next morning, he could hardly believe that all that had passed in the evening was true. But soon he found that it was but too real, and all was prepared for him to go to Rouen with the vassals. Indeed, it was for no other purpose than to fetch him that the Count of Harcourt had come to Bayeux. Fru Astrida was quite unhappy that the child, as she called him, should go alone with the warriors. But Sir Eric laughed at her, and said that it would never do for the Duke of Normandy to bring his nurse with him in his first entry into Rouen, and she must be content to follow at some space behind under the escort of Walter the Huntsman. So she took leave of Richard, charging both Sir Eric and Osmond to have the utmost care of him, and shedding tears as if the parting was to be for a much longer space. Then he bade farewell to the servants of the castle, received the blessing of Father Lucas, and, mounting his pony, rode off between Sir Eric and Count Bernard. Richard was but a little boy, and he did not think so much of his loss as he rode along in the free morning air, feeling himself a prince at the head of his vassals, his banner displayed before him, and the people coming out wherever he passed to gaze on him and call for blessings on his name. Reynolf de Ferrier carried a large purse filled with silver and gold, and whenever they came to these gazing crowds, Richard was well pleased to thrust his hands deep into it and scatter handfuls of coins among the gazers, especially where he saw little children. They stopped to dine and rest in the middle of the day, at the castle of a baron who, as soon as the meal was over, mounted his horse and joined them in their ride to Rouen. So far it had not been very different from Richard's last journey, when he went to keep Christmas there with his father. But now they were beginning to come nearer the town. He knew the broad river Seine again, and saw the square tower of the cathedral, and he remembered how at that very place his father had met him, and how he had ridden by his side into the town, and had been led by his hand up to the hall. His heart was very heavy, as he recollected there was no one now to meet and welcome him. Scarcely any one to whom he could even tell his thoughts, for those tall grave barons had nothing to say to such a little boy, and the very respect and formality with which they treated him made him shrink from them still more, especially from the grim-faced Bernard. And Osmond, his own friend and playfellow, was obliged to ride far behind, as inferior in rank. They entered the town just as it was growing dark. Count Bernard looked back and arrayed the procession. Eric de Centeville bade Richard sit upright and not look weary, and then all the knights held back while the little duke rode alone a little in advance of them through the gateway. There was a loud shout of, "'Long live the little duke!' And crowds of people were standing round to gaze upon his entry, so many that the bag of coins was soon emptied by his largesses. The whole city was like one great castle shut in by a wall and moat, and with Rollo's tower rising at one end like the keep of a castle, and with Rollo's tower rising at one end like the keep of a castle, and it was thither that Richard was turning his horse. When the Count of Harcourt said, Nay, my lord, to the church of Our Lady. It was then considered a duty to be paid to the deceased that their relatives and friends should visit them as they lay in state, and sprinkle them with drops of holy water, 
and Richard was now to pay this token of respect. He trembled a little, and yet it did not seem quite so dreary, since he should once more look on his father's face, and he accordingly rode towards the cathedral. It was then very unlike what it is now. The walls were very thick, the windows small and almost buried in heavy carved arches. The columns within were low, clumsy, and circular, and it was usually so dark that the vaulting of the roof could scarcely be seen. Now, however, a whole flood of light poured forth from every window, and when Richard came to the door, he saw not only the two tall, thick candles that always burnt on each side of the altar, but in the chancel stood a double row ranged in a square, shedding a pure, quiet brilliancy throughout the building, and chiefly on the silver and gold ornaments of the altar. Outside these lights knelt a row of priests in dark garments, their heads bowed over their clasped hands, and their chanted psalms sounding sweet and full of soothing music. Within that guarded space was a bier, and a form lay on it. Richard trembled still more with awe, and would have paused, but he was obliged to proceed. He dipped his hand in the water of the font, crossed his brow, and came slowly on, sprinkled the remaining drops on the lifeless figure, and then stood still. There was an oppression on his breast, as if he could neither breathe nor move. There lay William of the Long Sword, like a good and true Christian warrior, arrayed in his shining armor, his sword by his side, his shield on his arm, and a cross between his hands clasped upon his breast. His ducal mantle of crimson velvet lined with ermine was round his shoulders, and instead of a helmet his coronet was on his head. But in contrast with this rich array, over the collar of the hauberk was folded the edge of a rough hair shirt, which the duke had worn beneath his robes, unknown to all, until his corpse was disrobed of his blood-stained garments. His face looked full of calm, solemn peace, as if he had gently fallen asleep, and was only awaiting the great call to awaken. There was not a single token of violence visible about him, save that one side of his forehead bore a deep purple mark where he had first been struck by the blow of the oar which had deprived him of sense. "'See you that, my lord?' said Count Bernard, first breaking the silence in a low, deep, stern voice. Richard had heard little for many hours past save counsels against the Flemings, and plans of bitter enmity against them, and the sight of his murdered father with that look and tone of the old Dane fired his spirit, and breaking from his trance of silent awe and grief he exclaimed, "'I see it, and dearly shall the traitor Fleming abide it!' Then, encouraged by the applauding looks of the nobles, he proceeded, feeling like one of the young champions of Fru Astrida's songs. His cheek was coloured, his eye lighted up, and he lifted his head so that the hair fell back from his forehead. He laid his hand on the hilt of his father's sword, and spoke on in words, perhaps suggested by some sage. "'Yes, Arnulf of Flanders, know that Duke William of Normandy shall not rest unavenged. On this good sword I vow, that as soon as my arm shall have strength—' The rest was left unspoken, for a hand was laid on his arm. A priest, who had hitherto been kneeling near the head of the corpse, had risen, and stood tall and dark over him, and looking up he recognized the pale grave countenance of Martin, abbot of Jumiege, his father's chief friend and counsellor. "'Richard of Normandy, what sayest thou?' 
said he sternly. Yes, hang thy head and reply not, rather than repeat those words. Dost thou come here to disturb the peace of the dead with clamours for vengeance? Dost thou vow strife and anger on that sword which was never drawn save in the cause of the poor and distressed? Wouldst thou rob him, to whose service thy life has been pledged, and devote thyself to that of his foe? Is that what thou hast learned from thy blessed father? Richard made no answer, but he covered his face with his hands to hide the tears which were fast streaming. "'Lord Abbot, Lord Abbot, this passes!' exclaimed Bernard the Dane. "'Our young lord is no monk, and we will not see each spark of noble and knightly spirit quenched as soon as it shows itself.' "'Count of Harcourt,' said Abbot Martin, "'are these the words of a savage pagan, or of one who has been washed in yonder blessed font? Never, while I have power, shalt thou darken the child's soul with thy foul thirst of revenge, insult the presence of thy master with the crime he so abhorred, nor the temple of him who came to pardon with thy hatred. Well do I know, ye barons of Normandy, that each drop of your blood would willingly be given, could it bring back our departed duke, or guard his orphan child. But if ye have loved the father, do his bidding. Lay aside that accursed spirit of hatred and vengeance. If ye love the child, seek not to injure his soul more deeply than even his bitterest foe, were it Arnulf himself, hath power to hurt him. The barons were silenced, whatever their thoughts might be, and Abbot Martin turned to Richard, whose tears were still dropping fast through his fingers, as the thought of those last words of his father returned more clearly upon him. The abbot laid his hand on his head, and spoke gently to him. "'These are tears of a softened heart, I trust,' said he. "'I well believe that thou didst scarce know what thou wert saying.' "'Forgive me,' said Richard, as well as he could speak." See there, said the priest, pointing to the large cross over the altar, thou knowest the meaning of that sacred sign? Richard bowed his head in assent and reverence. It speaks of forgiveness, continued the abbot, and knowest thou who gave that pardon? The son forgave his murderers, the father them who slew his son, and shalt thou call for vengeance? But, oh, said Richard, looking up, must that cruel, murderous traitor glory unpunished in his crime while there lies? And again his voice was cut off by tears. Vengeance shall surely overtake the sinner, said Martin, the vengeance of the Lord, and in his own good time. But it must not be of thy seeking. Nay, Richard, thou art of all men the most bound to show love and mercy to Arnulf of Flanders. Yes, when the hand of the Lord hath touched him, and bowed him down in punishment for his crime, it is then that thou, whom he hath most deeply injured, should stretch out thine hand to aid him, and receive him with pardon and peace. If thou dost vow aught on the sword of thy blessed Father in the sanctuary of thy Redeemer, let it be a Christian vow. Richard wept too bitterly to speak, and Bernard de Harcourt, taking his hand, led him away from the church. End of chapter 2 Recording by Kalinda in Raymond, New Hampshire, on November twentieth, two 2007